1996, Mikhail Gorbachev wrote in his memoir, The crisis in our country will continue for some time, possibly leading to even greater upheaval. But Russia has irrevocably chosen the path of freedom and no one can make it turn back to totalitarianism. Democracy is the only way to Russia's revival, to a life of dignity for its great people and eventually to prosperity in the community of other civilized nations. Did Mikhail Gorbachev's vision come to pass? in the new Russia. That is the question for today's Burning Archive. So welcome to episode 67 of the Burning Archive podcast. This is part two of my commemorative episode uh, following the death of Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, the second part of that episode that is beginning to talk about the history of Russia backwards and so through looking at Gorbachev I guess we look at the last 50 years or so of Russian history which is a profoundly important question to world affairs today given there has been much rhetoric uh, about the nature of the new Russia and its place in the world and whether or not it has realised Mikhail Gorbachev's vision of a new democratic Russia. Uh, Okay, so in part one, so before I get into the podcast, remind everyone to uh, subscribe and to share and to leave a five-star review of the podcast or whatever um, platform you can and um, support the work of the Burning Archive in ensuring that the past is not dead, the past is not even past, and more importantly, perhaps thinking about the past so we live better in the present. So in part one of the episode on Mikhail Gorbachev, I spoke of his significance in history and I guess his three big aims of his political life, glasnost or openness, perestroika or rebuilding, and peace in international relations. And these three ideas were actually quite closely connected. They were part of his overall fundamental reforms of, uh, I guess, bringing uh, an integrated Soviet Union into the world. Uh, and he himself summarised them as the new thinking. Uh, and in part two of this episode, I am going to explore each of these ideas of his new thinking in a little bit more detail, looking at what specifically Gorbachev achieved in his six years of uh, leadership of the Soviet Union, what he Uh, perhaps failed to do and was subsequently frustrated about uh, the subsequent leaders of Russia doing or not doing and what the ongoing legacy of those those reforms uh, is or is not. And then I'm going to sort of summarise, I guess, by trying to place Gorbachev in the, uh, in the history of Russia over the last 50 years, and in particular, I guess, um, making sense of where his story fits in relationship to those of his successors, particularly Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin. 
And at, at the end of part one of this episode, I actually played the full resignation speech that Mikhail Gorbachev gave on uh, Christmas Day 1991 that actually also marked the dissolution of the Soviet Union, an extraordinary, extraordinary day in history. I mean, Russia today is the largest country in the world, it occupies one-sixth of the world, and in 1991 the Soviet Union was even bigger, comprising, uh, I think it was like 17 republics, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Ukraine, um, and Kazakhstan, and more. I won't go through them all. So, um, and it really was of an equivalent population size to the United States as well, of the same military significance. But I didn't really introduce that resignation speech. I just played it on the out, uh, on the out, and hopefully listeners were able to pick up some of the themes that came through and that were referred to uh, during the course of my episode, uh, part one of the episode, where I sort of gave a bit of a run-through of Gorbachev's life and times. Um, but let me just play the last minute uh, or two of that resignation speech, perhaps also as a launching pad for today's episode. And I'll give a little bit of uh, explanatory comment at the end of that. It's approximately two minutes of the speech. The consequences of the August push was also very dangerous. And the country, the government has fallen apart. Now we have the people of a great country are facing new changes. The consequences of falling apart of this country can be difficult for everybody. We must keep the democratic reforms of the past few years. They have, they have been won by our tragic history and our bitter experience. I hope that under any, under no circumstances, the hope and the betterment of the individual will continue. All this talk about very honestly and directly. This is my moral obligation, my moral duty. Today I want to thank everyone, all the citizens who supported the politics of change, who included themselves into fulfilling democratic reforms. I thank to the government and political leaders, the millions of people overseas, all the ones who understood our designs, supported them, and met us, and honest cooperation with us. I leave my post with concerns, but also with hope. I leave you with my belief in your wisdom, you are the inheritors of a great civilization, and it depends on every single one of you, so it gets reborn again and has happy and honorable life for us all. I want to thank from the bottom of my soul everyone who stood with me for this great and honorable duty. Of course, we could have avoided some mistakes, we could have made new stuff better, but I am sure as sooner or later, our common efforts will give fruit. Our people will live in a growing, prospering, democratic society. 
I wish you all the best. So at the moment that his country has fallen apart through less honest efforts of some international partners, including the United States, a nationalist and cynical within the country, Les Yeltsin, the old guard of the Communist Party, but also the new oligarchs who the country with Western help. Uh, Gorbachev thanks all the people who participated in democratic reforms and reiterates that it is his moral obligation, his moral duty, to focus on the development of the individual. And he expresses hope that despite all the difficulties, Russia would Oh, Russia and the so all the ex-Soviet states uh, would continue to be the inheritors of a great civilization that would be reborn and would emerge as a prosperous democratic society. In some ways, and he also noted, he thanked the millions of people overseas, and let's not doubt the huge numbers of Western publics who, like myself indeed, who saw uh, Gorbachev as a great figure of hope, in contrast perhaps to Ronald Reagan and uh, George H.W. Bush in bringing genuine peace, nuclear disarmament, and a new model of development to the world back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And he thanked the people uh, who overseas who met with him and cooperated honestly with him. Just the slightest hint of his awareness of those who, like perhaps George H.W. Bush and uh, the uh, military-industrial uh, complex of uh, the United States perhaps never really cooperated honestly with Gorbachev. So it's a remarkable speech, and in many ways the concluding sentiment is not that dissimilar to the sentiment that I read at the top of this program that actually expressed Gorbachev's uh, hope and belief that despite the extraordinary chart trials that Russia would endure during the 1990s, it would emerge as a new Russia, as a more democratic and prosperous Russia. And the three big ideas, as I said in the previous program, that were really knitting together those, uh, his political vision, uh, and were expressed in that concluding speech were Glasnost, open perestroika, rebuild, and Peace, peace initiative. It's to them now that I am going to turn. Although, I sh- I, before I leave that concluding speech, I, I should just mention one uh, comment early on, which I didn't replay in that speech, that Gorbachev expressed his determination to secure peace in his country and to avoid a civil war, and that his unwilling consent to the dissolution of the country and his resignation in the country was partly intended to avoid exactly that thing, that civil war. And this is in a country that had only 70 years previously, uh, in the years following the 1917 uh, revolution, in Russia experienced a utterly brutal uh, civil war that not only affected Russia, but Ukraine and 
or that the entire uh, realm of the Soviet Union. An extraordinary, brutal and deadly civil war in which the United Kingdom and of Britain and the United States of America were actively involved on behalf of, uh, in order to undermine the, the Bolshevik in the Soviet Union. That that is really quite a remarkable um, speech. So do go back perhaps and listen to the last 10 minutes or so of episode one of the podcast after this one as well to get a sense of the significance of that speech. Uh, so different, so both serious and tragic and deep compared to many of the other resignation speeches we are in Australia or in the women our political last 20 years. Uh, anyhow, Gorbachev was blessed with another 30 years of productive life after that resignation speech, but he would never again play an active role in politics. But he did write two quite significant books uh, and gave numerous lectures and interviews commenting on Russia and the ex-Soviet world, as well as international affairs uh, as, they, as Russia and the ex-Soviet world emerged from the ashes of 91. And from these, we learn a lot about Gorbachev's reading of events, his his retrospective assessment of his life, his years in power, and the complexity of the new multipolar democratic world that Gorbachev helped bring into being. Uh, so what I'm going to do is talk about each of the key ideas, glasnost, perestroika, and peace in turn. Uh, and then make a bit of an overall assessment of uh, Gorbachev's uh, life and his place in history. So, glasnost. Now, this word generally is translated to mean openness, and obviously part of that openness is, you know, the, 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 the bringing down of the architecture of censorship and the whole complex uh, world of, I guess, state propaganda that existed in the Soviet regimes. But Glasnost has a bit more of a complex and um, perhaps one way of making sense of this is to remind ourselves of uh, Bachklav Havel uh, in the 1970s talking about living in truth and how there was a whole system of both propaganda, known lies coming out from the state propaganda machine, uh, Soviet and Warsaw Pact countries, that people both felt oppressed by, but they also in a way, bought into. So there was the example of guy of, you know, the greengrocer who, uh, I guess, engages in a, in a radical political act by refusing to put up sign of the world unite his greengrocer's shop so you need to remember i guess the closed secret political system was operating in societies and the uh, enormous extent of the i guess the propaganda machine included uh, both state media um, but also intellectuals of all kinds, you know, propaganda education, propaganda in universities, and uh, I guess this comfortable system in which like, the Union of Soviet writers, for example, were given favours, I guess, to individual artists so long as they kind of kept kept their subject matter comfortable for the political system. 
And Mikhail Gorbachev's glasnost reforms, his openness reforms, were disrupting not just, it wasn't just a general attitude of removing censorship or encouraging free speech, it was actually changing the entire political conduct of that system. So his uh, memoirs from 1996, his chapter about the beginning of Glasgow is actually called Malight, and he describes how in a trip to Leningrad in 85, there was, and I quote, unusual contact between leader and people that can be considered as the first event of Glasnost. My speech, given without any notes or preliminary consultations with my colleagues, created a real problem for the Politburo. Much of what was in the unpublished material of the Central Committee plenums had been discussed in secret in the upper echelons of the party, but now was spilled out for the first time for him to hear. So it's funny actually reading Gorbachev's description of his practices of Glasnost because <laughs> um, it, it in today's tightly controlled media political world, uh, There's an uncanny similarity, perhaps, between some of the old practices it states. Part of the thing that Glasnost was 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 actually speaking to an audience that uh, would ask unpredictable questions and uh, would uh, directly engage with with the leader. And so that was so. Glasnost was not just a general. Uh, not just the removal of censorship and the opening up of things, but it was also starting to break down this uh, system of manipulated public discussion and opening it up to to the realities that they experience. Um, he probably would not, Gorbachev would not have been allowed to do this by contemporary political media. Uh, and he says... Uh, in, in his memoir, that doing this was also a new, for him, a kind of a personal achievement. It is one thing to speak for a rostrum or a favourably minded, disciplined auditorium, and another thing to speak face to face when you may be interrupted at any moment with objection. And the thing about Glasnost is it also, it sort of uh, in, was encouraging all those, all Vaclav Havel's greengrocers to stop putting the slogans in uh, their shops and to uh, engage in open, uh, genuine discussion. It gave Perestroika a social... Um, so that was Glasnost. So it's it's openness, and but it's something more than just free speech. And in his 2016, Gorbachev actually addressed this because there was a subsequent controversy in Russia about of Glasnost, the uh, one-time president of Russia, Medvedev, as president, had said that Glasnost was a palliative. He says, it is a defective term. What is needed is free speech. But Glasnost is a palliative hooked up in the Soviet period in order to give avoid its proper so in response to what Gorbachev does in 2016 book, The New Russia, was he actually goes back to a dictionary published between 1890 and 19th and refers to the precise definition of Glasnost, that Glasnost is one, and the concept he quotes goes like this, in a state governed under the rule of law, Glasnost is one of the guarantees of the proper function of political power and social organisation. It is not only 
and then he comments, it is not only this essential and perform perestroika Russia. And he says that glasnost, as he understood from the very outset, includes having the opportunity to express your own opinion, to debate, to criticise government and demand change. But encompasses more than that. Glasnost transparency in all transparency in the government itself, its public accountability, its willingness to engage in dialogue with the people. And so, in a way, it's almost like an ideal of genuine, informed, educated public debate. So it, it, it is something that is actually, in Gorbachev's mind, related to what he described as the spirit, the activation, spiritual potential of society, getting people to really engage and own society and engage in constructive public discussion a democratic spirit make it happen so and so that's interesting so i think that means glasnost is a concept that is actually of broader relevance than just that period of the soviet union it's a concept you could say perhaps could still be applied to many contemporary societies today in terms of what glasnost uh what Gorbachev achieved. Uh, well, he certainly brought down the tight censorship. He freed uh, dissenters like Andrei Sakharov. He brought back exiled writers, well, allowed to come back to society, various exiled Russian writers. He established democratic institutions. He established a multi-party system. He opened archives, created a more independent judicial system, and he certainly activated society. It's those citizens he thanked in his resignation speech for actively participating in the democratic reforms that he uh, referred to. And as the years rolled on with the new Russia, Absolutely, under Boris Yeltsin, most severely, he criticised uh, the 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 use of the media to support sort of uh, state state reforms, and he also severely criticised the manipulation of state and private media in Russia by uh, Putin and Dmitry Medvedev. Late, so Gorbachev saw some absolute gain, I guess, in Glasnost, but he also saw it developing in ways that he felt was failing his ideals of that educated public discussion rather than simply free speech and also feeling certain things were being rolled back. And also many of the uses of glasnost or of free speech, he was frustrated. Perhaps one of Gorbachev's failings as a person was he did not suffer fools gladly. And after 70 years of repressed speech, the initial years of Glasnost and certainly then in the 1990s saw some, I guess, extreme opinions, let's say, and some ridiculous ideas. Uh, in, uh, in his memoir back in 1996, he says, Glasnost broke out of the limits that we had initially tried to frame and became a troll. But he was very critical too of uh, what he described as the spoiled and pampered intelligentsia 
who had grown used uh, cliques that ruled the artists and who who used the new openness and the new uh, glasnost too, not in with the serious democratic pretended. He was very critical of how the free media, the tabloid media, and some of his uh, criticisms, I guess, of the intelligentsia, the party system, the parliamentary institutions, uh, and the nature of the society were are not, I guess, categorically different to faults of Western democratic society. Some of his criticism of the tabloid press, of a party system that offers no real choice and doesn't properly debate and educate real policies with the public, are not dissimilar to many criticisms of people of Western democratic countries. So uh, I guess he felt that Glasnost was a process that had begun, but also that perhaps developed in ways that he was not entirely comfortable with. And of course, one of those ways was, I guess, the nationalism that was unleashed by uh, Glasnost, both within Russia and uh, as in like extreme uh, rightist nationalism extreme in as in, in Russia and in many of the uh, former Soviet republics, including Ukraine. And Gorbachev was also not... He he was a committed democratic socialist. He was not really uh, comfortable with the conservative tradition of Russia and perhaps felt both conservatists and consumerist and other sorts of elements that were... Uh, that bubbled up to the surface in the freer environment post-1985 uh, that he was not. So he he criticises Vladimir Putin, for example, for uh, referring to various conservative Russian philosophers of the uh, 19th and early 20th century, uh, some of whom were actually by regime. Glasnost then remains an open task in the new... And perhaps Gorbachev's criticisms of the new... Are on a spectrum of many principled democraticisms of our own societies. There are certainly abuses of the political system in Russia, a very imperfect state, and <laughs> and as, as not just Russia, but Gorbachev would also have been thinking of the many uh, pseudo-autocratic uh, and deeply corrupt uh, post-Soviet state he won. Uh, but the spirit of Glasnost, the spirit of the spiritual activation of the people, remained in an ideal, not a unique task for Russia or the ex-Soviet states, but it was really his uh, vision, I guess, of a democratic socialist future for all countries. Okay, let's turn now to Perestroika. So I'm going to be a bit perhaps briefer on Perestroika because discussed it a fair bit last, including, I guess, uh, Mark B. Smith's comment that the Soviet Union sort of committed suicide as a result of a badly constructed reform program. And I think if you see Perestroika as just a rough uh, designed reform program, perhaps the case. But in, And Perestroika is certainly the ultimate, uh, well, as Gorbachev himself said, self new Russia was the ultimate, his ultimate legacy. One, it was still to the verdict was. But I think it's important to emphasize that perestroika meant for Gorbachev rebuilding, not 
tearing down, but rebuilding. It meant rebuilding society and fundamentally society. It meant rebuilding the economy and moving towards not a pure market economy, but to mixed economy with a role for the market and private ownership, less central planning. And it meant rebuilding of the political institution uh, away from a one-party state towards a multi-party state with uh, democratic institutions and a, a rebuilt uh, Soviet Union of federated republics of the multinational, multi-ethnic nature of, of the Soviet Union, a rebuilding of that same political uh, entity which recognised the various national identities. It also meant, uh, and I, I forgot to mention religious freedoms, that was a very important part of Glasnost as well, but similarly it meant uh, uh, enabling uh, religious, you know, Gorbachev talked about the spiritual activation of the society, it also meant enabling church and other private institutions to play a larger role in social life. It was a vision of rebuilding a humane and democratic socialism. But the great struggle of Perestroika was it became, through the latter years of the Soviet Union and then certainly following the disintegration of the, it became a struggle over the implementation of purest market a radical purist market. The Soviet Union tried to go in 500 days from centrally planned economy to the uh, like uh, a, a uh, abstractly defined pure market society uh, as planned by various Western economists. It was the most ultimate tragic event, extraordinarily tragic that still vacations to this day. Nevertheless, within even in the economic and the social realm, there's no doubt that Gorbachev achieved a lot with uh, perestroika. One of the things was agriculture, you know, uh, all agriculture since the 1930s in Russia was collectivized. Uh, and one of the ongoing problems of the Soviet Union, its economy was its failure to produce enough food for people. This led to shortages and red goo, all the rest, the classic cliche of uh, Soviet life. And the the transition of large parts of the economy into the owns of it farmers, in the long term, did actually solve that problem. Russia is now a major agricultural exporter and is much less uh, it, so that has no doubt a significant success similarly social freedoms the revival of the church so many other things there have been there's significant private initiative now uh, Russia but uh, undoubtedly the uh, opening of the gate to economic market ex uh, created part of well, created the well, was a key part of social catastrophe of, of the 1990 Russia and Gorbachev, uh, perhaps through uncertainty, through pressures, uh, the complexity of his role uh, was perhaps never clear in setting direction and limit on the radical economic democratic who were also let's 
actively encourage. Uh, Gorbachev has also said that the disintegration of the institutions of the Soviet Union, economic, political, social institutions of the Soviet Union, outran the rebuilding of the new democratic. And this was perhaps the biggest failure of perestroika. But in the longer term, the the I guess the intentions of uh, Paris have have resumed, and there is a much more successful party and operating. But it is not the democratic socialist vision that Mikhail Gorbachev had, and in a funny sort of way, his transition to a vision of from communist reformer to democratic socialist, it came to power in Russia or the Soviet Union and the East, Eastern Europe when it was dying in the West. In the late 1980s and 1990s, the rise of Tony Blair in the third way in Australia, it's, it's the adoption by the Labour Party of market reforms of of economic rationalism as much as democratic socialist vision. But Gorbachev, through his later life, retained this commitment to a democratic vision, uh, which was absolutely devastating, his criticism of Yeltsin, but also severely critical of uh, Putin and Medvedev. His, some of his deepest critics of Putin are that uh, that the the Russian state cultivates an immature relationship between the party and government. It's not. It's, it's a top-down cultivate. A the kind of educated, informed, engaged debate that Gorbachev prized so much. Still, he's also not entirely uh, unsupportive of Putin. His deepest, his sharpest criticisms. Criticism. Uh, absolute uh, those uh, w- were targeted at Yeltsin and the, the looting of Soviet society and Russian society and of uh, the corruption of the succumbing power of oligarch. So he actually, in many ways, he was quite supportive. Of, he has been quite support. He was quite supportive of Putin's process of rebuilding the Soviet state and rebuilding the Soviet economy, and as a, a continuing process, recognizing that Putin had to clear out the, the institutions meant the corrupt people who had yields uh, the West. And Gorbachev also saw perestroika as not a task only for Russia. In the latter part of his life, he uh, would often tour America, if lectures there. And in 2008, he was giving America, uh, prior to the presidential campaign, Barack Obama was subsequently elected, and he would remind his audience of of the need uh, of J- John F. Kennedy's speech in that uh, you know, America should not enforce a peace on the basis of American weapons, and that it should also look the challenge society. And in New Russia, he Gorbachev saw a close link between perestroika and peace. So perestroika is a task just for the Soviet Union. It was a task that the Soviet Union to undertake to achieve peace in the world as well, to rebuild its society and its economy away from sort of a militaristic state locked in a Cold War conflict with America and towards a more open, democratic, prosperous society. And so, and this is something of a bridge to third discussion of the third big idea of 
peace. He saw the challenge of perestroika being just one for the Soviet Union, but also the West for America. And so if I just read a little bit from Russia, he says, uh, speaking in the United States, I never tired of reminding Americans of John F. Kennedy's in his 1963 speech in Washington to the American quotes, Kennedy, his J.F. Kennedy in 1963. What kind of peace do I mean? What kind of peace do we Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the secure of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace. The kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living. The kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and to build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all women. And Gorbachev continues, in other words, there will either be peace for all or peace for none. The principle of indivisible. Uh, one affirmed uh, proposed peace treaties of Russia. Of Gorbachev continues, I would ask my audience a question. Do you want an America that acts as a global police, imposing democracy on other peoples with tanks and missiles? Uh, never once did I find anyone wanting to answer question affirmatively. Probably some agreed with me and others at least thought it over. The unwisdom of the pursuit of a monopoly of leadership, that is, Unipolar, and its dire consequences were becoming increasingly obvious to many Americans, both men of the political age and particularly ordinary citizens. People were aware of the need to change. Before the beginning of the 2008 presidential campaign, two young people in the audience asked me after a speech in St. Louis, what advice would you give America today when we all feel that something is not right in our country? I tried to dodge the question by saying this was something new. Usually it was America that gave advice to other countries. But my question is persistent. So I said, I am not going to try to tell you what you should do or offer you a blueprint. But one thing I am sure about is that America needs own American perestroika. People rose from their seats and gave those words a standing ovation. And so we turn to the third leg of Gorbachev's political vision, which was peace. And in a way, peace is inseparably bound up with both glasnost and perestroika and and peace at home and peace abroad in new russia gorbachev wrote in 16 or so that the new thinking of the perestroika period glasnost perestroika uh, runs through events of its basis was the recognition of the interconnection and interdependence of the world the indivisibility of global security and the importance of human values and in and he spoke of his own uh, admiration for precursors to his own political vision such as john f kennedy with that speech about uh, a pax americana not being enforced on the world by weapons of war of the swedish social democrat olaf palmer who was murdered in Stockholm, whose murder has never yet been solved, leading to some people having suspicions about involvement of foreign states. And Willy Brandt from Germany, Mitterrand and Helmut Schmidt, all these people who were really 
like Gorbachev, like a 1980s democratic socialist who believed in a vision of a greater Europe, a pan-European vision that could bring Western Europe together. And as the years grew on, uh, Gorbachev became increasingly disappointed by how leaders in the West, especially in America, uh, misunderstood the fundamental issues of what happened during his uh, period in office. And here I quote from New Russia, his deep concern that some of his most important achievements in terms of nuclear disarmament were reversed because of a misreading by the West, and particularly the United States, of the circumstance of the collapse and the, of the Cold War. Gorbachev was deeply, personally and politically committed to non-violence. He had a deep, deep aversion to violence. He achieved perhaps more than anyone else in terms of nuclear disarmament, and many of those initiatives were really on his... Uh, they were his his initiatives it was not the you know it wasn't reagan was brought to the nuclear disarmament uh, table so to speak by gorbachev's energy and his proactive pursuit of uh very very substantial uh reductions in nuclear stocks he believed in indivisible security remains a principle of uh, international peace articulated by russia today and he was also, he believed in the integrated Soviet state and he felt utterly betrayed by the West and by people like Boris who brought down the, uh, the so-called. But he also believed, I guess, in, I guess, that common European home uh, and perhaps was unfortunate in having a shared vision of a democratic, socialist, pan-European, common European home at the moment in the West's history when the political league turning ideas, they were turning towards a, you know, a free market capitalist vision and an Atlantis vision of their future. But one should always remember the deep, profound achievements of Gorbachev with peace. There was nuclear disarmament. There was the peaceful dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, much more so uh, peaceful than uh, something that Gorbachev, I guess, initiated and was not reciprocated by American dissolving NATO. He took the initiative to the Cold War, I think, as much as anything that was Gorbachev's achievement. And uh, to refer to him helping end the Cold War is perhaps a little rich. And I think he uh, was aware of this. In New Russia, he wrote, the West claimed a victory as if the Cold War had ended not as the result of joint efforts, not through negotiation, but thanks to power politics. This led them to conclude that they should further increase their authority. And he challenged directly Barack Obama on the U.S. doctrine of global. He expressed his disappointment, saying with the generation of leaders uh, after in both West and and. East, in after um, 1991, saying the generation of politicians that replaced our failed signally 
to improve security in Europe and the rest of the world. The worst blunder was the decision to expand NATO and turn it into a guarantor of security, not only in Europe, but borders. That message uh, that I've articulated in my podcast that John Mearsheimer has articulated, that the architect of uh, American foreign policy towards the Soviet Union in the post-World War II period, George Kennan articulated that the failure to, to honestly deal and fairly deal in a negotiated peace to end, to truly end the Cold War in the 1990s and to then expand NATO uh, was a seemingly successful but ultimately disastrous policy. And in, in June 1991, Gorbachev actually held a summit with George H.W. Bush, which was really a decisive moment in his political career, a decisive moment in the fate of the world at that very time when his internal enemy and America was taking all sorts of steps to activate uh, sort of unruly dissent amongst the various nations within the Soviet Union and to aggressively push the uh, extremist market reforms, the 500 days plan on the Soviet uh, when the Western countries actively refused to support Gorbachev in an tangible way in rebuilding of this, despite all the overtures of peace and democracy and uh, reform that he articulated. This press conference uh, happened between George H.W. Bush and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And in a way, it's a fateful five minutes where the fate of the world for the next 30 years would be determined when for a moment we uh, the press conference begins with a British journalist from The Guardian uh, asking, could it be, could it be that we can dissolve NATO? English newspaper, The Guardian. <laughs> Question to President Bush, if I may, to follow up my colleague's one. Are there circumstances under which you would be prepared to recommend the total dissolution of NATO. What's the threat that still keeps it in business? The journalist then asks Gorbachev a question, effectively, how many times uh, make overture conclude lasting the peace in Europe. Do you want me to start with that one? That is the voice of George H.W. Bush, uh, then president who put a pause on Reagan's US-Soviet peace rapprochement and had uh, started to pursue the uh, Cold War-style pressures in the Soviet Union and was, of course, also a former director of the CIA. George Bush now can answer. All right, the threat, as I looked at the world, the threat is unpredictability and stability. How do you, or instability is a threat. We feel that a continued U.S. presence uh, in Europe uh, should not be seen as hostile to the Soviet interests, but indeed we hope a continued U.S. presence there will be seen uh, as something that's stabilizing. And NATO is the 
the existing machinery uh, that we feel uh, with an expanded uh, mission uh, can best, uh, best provide that uh, stability. And herein we have a difference with the Soviet Union. But it, it is that rather than some kind of Cold War mentality uh, that, uh, that uh, drives, drives our decision uh, to one, remain in Europe, and two, to try to have a, have a broader role for NATO under Article 2 of the NATO Treaty. There is language put in there, I'm told, by Lester Pearson years ago that provides a broader um, uh, than, than just military assignment for NATO. So we see this as not exclusive to an expanded role for CSCE, not contradictory to the aspirations of many Europeans for an expanded EC, but as a way in which we can continue without hostility to anyone to, to uh, provide uh, a stabilizing presence. And then uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who you hear both his voice and the voice of the translator here, responds. I'd like to respond to this extremely important question, if I may. First, as an overall statement of the fact. It seems to me that if some kind of option is suggested, one that would replace or would be accompanied by replacing an isolation on the European continent, either of the United States of America or of the Soviet Union, then I would say in no uncertain terms, and I could even make a forecast, that that particular option would be doomed. It would be doomed in the sense that it would be difficult to put into effect, but what matters most, it would lead to the exacerbation rather than improvement in the situation. For that reason, we believe that we will not be able to make any further progress in restructuring international relations, including in the main European area without an active participation of the United States of America and the Soviet Union. These are realities. And there's also a great sense of responsibility behind those realities. This is the first point. The second point now. Yes, indeed, we believe that the option which we think will be found eventually and which will provide powerful momentum and which would contribute to the strengthening of the European process must necessarily include some kind of a transition period during which we could join our efforts to conclude a final document exhausting thereby the rights we are endowed with as the victorious four powers under the results of the Second World War. These are the issues that were raised by history itself, and so, therefore, in the framework of international law, it must be brought to conclusion. A concurrent unification of Germany and its presence would mean the coincidence of these two events. This would mean that this would be an independent and sovereign state. I really don't know, and I wouldn't like to engage in uh, speculation about the time limits, but I think that we must be uh, very, very active now. 
so that uh, so as to ensure some kind of synchronization between the internal processes which lead to the unification of Germany and uh, the settlement of uh, external aspects so that they would be combined. I can see and I offered many options in our position. Those options are there and it seems to me there are some points uh, there are some points the American side has uh, noticed. I am expressing my supposition. I am not saying that I heard this from President, but I think they have something to think about and I think we will give serious thinking to the U.S. position too. Regrettably, as Mikhail Gorbachev hoped to bring a peaceful resolution of the uh, Cold War, the reunification of Germany as an independent and sovereign state, not a NATO satellite, and in effect also to finally conclude the frozen conflicts of the Second World War. The U.S. was undermining Gorbachev within Russia. Boris Yeltsin proclaimed Russia, the Russian, Feder- uh, the Russian Federation within the Soviet Union, would pursue an independent national policy and the most extreme market reforms. And Gorbachev was betrayed by the West, specifically the Americans who pursued the vision of a unipolar world. In some ways, that press conference uh, marks a moment that we are still living the consequences of the the, uh, failure to uh, negotiate a genuine peace at the end of the Cold War. It is the failure, perhaps Gorbachev's greatest failure, but not one for which he should be solely blamed because ultimately it was the betrayal of the West and well, betrayal by the West and specifically the Americans that uh, provoked the disintegration of the Soviet Union, uh, angered the, the rear guard of uh, the Soviet military who attempted a coup against Gorbachev two to three months after that press conference, and that led to the disintegration of the Soviet Union, the looting of Russia, and I guess, you know, the the deeply held grievances of uh, the Soviet world for what Lantis had done. And that remains part of conflict today in Ukraine. It's worth noting, in a way, that peace was perhaps Gorbachev's greatest achievement, but realism and hard-headedness in diplomacy was perhaps his greatest failure. But still, his vision of a durable, multipolar world, peace is of enduring relevance and, I guess, continues to slowly come into being in the world today. In New Russia, he argued for a new model uh, international movement underpinned by the mission connection dependent the world indivisible. He challenged poverty, sustainability, environment. He challenged George Shultz, former you know foreign minister for America, about how America was exporting its way of life in a way complete. And he complained that politics was here. I quote confined 
in an iron cage by the demand and dogmas. He wrote, though, that the aspiration polar was ultimately a delusion. And here he wrote, The multipolar world with one country invariably having the last word did not come to pass. Pass. In the last two decades, we have in the last two decades we have witnessed a gradual shift in the global balance of power. The collective West, the U.S. and the European have increasingly to consider the opinions of other players. The stage of world politics by the, those countries he meant the BRICS nations: Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And he meant uh, China, Japan, ASEAN, and the Global South. And uh, especially as Gorbachev's death has occurred amidst the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, the Russia-NATO-Ukraine, it's perhaps uh, a good point to end this section on peace with Gorbachev's comments in New on the Russia on Ukraine, which he wrote following the events of 2014 and 2015 the 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 change in the regime or government in 2014 the overthrow of kovic some see through a democratic revolution d'etat and the subsequent civil war and he comments that these events are severely testing not only relationship but also the prospects for global and which could bring the brink Everything I see happen. The stakes are too high, too great for every Russian. Ukraine, our relation, historical culture for so long exists. The framework so long close. He then discusses his views on the refers to a letter he wrote to Vladimir Putin, Barak, urging to take the lead. Immediate end blood. He ref- but he says that the letter was truly a creed, but it fell the. Events continued to develop as if under their own, as out of control as an avalanche. The unforgivable, the unforgivable thing I warned the two presidents about became a reality. While the foreign ministers of three European community countries, Germany, France and Poland, conducted talks in Kiev, the chaotic, chaotic situation in Ukraine worsened. The agreements they reached proved ineffective, that is, risk agreements. Yanukovych fled the country and the parliament, pressured by radicals, that is, the far-right uh, extreme nationalist groups that uh, are partly the object of the special military operation by Russia and that have severely contaminated Ukrainian politics in years, started rubber-stamping resolutions that infringed the rights of many citizens and jeopardized the status of the Russian language. So he urged peace and he urged understanding of the deep nature of the conflict. Why had things developed so badly? In the West, he wrote, by which I mean the ruling elites of the United States and the countries of NATO, everything was blamed on Russia. Everywhere they saw the long arm of Moscow. But this conflict was not of Russia's making. It has its roots within Ukraine itself. I see, this is Gorbachev speaking, I see the main deep cause of the Ukrainian events in the disruption of perestroika and the mindless, reckless disbanding of the USSR. 
The primary responsibility for that lies with Russia's then leadership, that is, Boris Yeltsin, which exacerbated centrifugal processes in the Union. At the same time, I remind my readers that the Ukrainian leaders sabotaged transformation of the Union, as in the Soviet Union, both before the August 1991 coup and after it, in spite of the fact that the text of a Union treaty had been agreed with a majority of the republics. I fought to preserve the Union state with all the political, and I stress political, means at my disposal. I proposed negotiations with Ukraine on an economic union, a common defence and foreign policy. In the course of such negotiations, we could have resolved all the thorny questions like the status of Sevastopol and Crimea and the Black Sea fleet. My suggestions and warnings at that time went unheeded. Forgetting that in relations between peoples, you need to apply the utmost circumspection to evaluate the consequences of every move, the Supreme Soviet of the Russian Federation rose to its feet to applaud its approval of the destruction of the Union on Boris Yeltsin's instigation. Some may say that this is all in the past now. Actually, no. The past has many threads tying it to the present. It gives us cause again and again to recall old mistakes politicians made. He end as he ended as Gorbachev always did on insisting on dialogue and a different model of peace in the multipolar. Again, it is tragic that both America and Russia did not heed that creed occur of twenty fourteen. Okay, finally, let's turn to Mikhail Gorbachev's role in Russian history of the last 450 years. Since the 1980s, there has been a slow, difficult birth of both a new Russia and a new Eurasia, the former under the former Soviet world. It has had many setbacks and many difficulties, uh, but there is no doubt that Mikhail Gorbachev initiated and accelerated that process. In some cases, events unfolded in ways differently to that which he intended. But his three big goals of a more open democratic state, rebuilt in ways suited to those nations and societies' needs and values, and within within a multipolar world of peace, continue to unfold. Perhaps in some ways, paradoxically, Putin is the conservative heir to Gorbachev's perestroika. Certainly, though, Mikhail Gorbachev has the best claim to be the father of the new emergingly democratic and prosperous and peaceful Russia. Certainly the claim by some American writers on Russia that Boris Yeltsin is the father of Russian democracy would make Gorbachev turn his grey. But Gorbachev's history, his role in history of the last 40 or 50 years is always 
complicated by the fact that he, he was the man who, in a way, opened the gates of Russia to the devils of the 1990s, who presided over the uh, suicide by mistake of the Soviet Union, who let let loose the dogs of extreme nationalist republics and of extreme market fundamentalism amongst the people who rebuilt the Soviet economy and who was unable to reconstruct the democratic state, the state institutions of the Soviet Union away from the Communist Party in time before the corruption of the 1990s, uh, sponsored in many ways by Boris Yeltsin in his circle, looted the wealth Russians and ended a utter uh, social catastrophe. Russians today perhaps see Gorbachev as uh, the man who is a victim of both a coup by the old guard and a revolt by the local oligarchs of the separate states of the Soviet Union. They see him perhaps as the man who naively opened the gates for Western leaders for Western looted through economic shock therapy, who could not stop the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the loss of any reasonable sense of law and order within uh, former Soviet republics. They might see him as the man who naively took the talk or the word of Western politicians in crucial matters of security, but did not secure the national interests of uh, Russia and the former Soviet republics in a secure, durable and meaningful peace agreement. And that, that has flared again today in the conflict between Ukraine, NATO and Russia. Gorbachev was a man of peace, a man of a certain virtue of a democratic temper who had the misfortune to live among thieves. He was betrayed by his opponents. He was betrayed by his international partners, especially the United States, who chose to pursue a policy to weaken and break up Russia, to loot Russia. It's a policy, regrettably, the United States continues to pursue to this day. How could the world have been different if, in 1991, George H. W. Bush, in that press conference in June, had decided not to pursue the Zbigniew Brzezinski strategy to break up and to impoverish the Soviet Union, but had instead decided to support Mikhail Gorbachev in the rebuilding of uh, the Soviet Union, the Soviet economy, the Soviet society. We will never know. But perhaps, perhaps his fate is still a lesson to everyone around the world. That the pursuit of global dominance at the expense of one's own society in ways that bankrupt one's own economy and society uh, cannot secure lasting peace. Perhaps it is time for Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, ideas of glasnost 
perestroika and peace to find a new home in America and the collective West. And perhaps the memory of Gorbachev, like Banquo's ghost haunted Macbeth, will haunt the leaders of the West who betrayed this man of peace, will haunt the failing leaders of the West who continue to pursue the policies that destroyed the opportunity for peace that Gorbachev presented to the leaders of the West in the 1980s and 1990s. Rest in peace, Mikhail Gorbachev. You were an extraordinarily significant person in my own, I guess, memory uh, and an extraordinarily significant person the history of the world of the last uh, hundred years and perhaps there is no better way uh, to go out on this show than to hear Mikhail Gorbachev's voice again but this time singing one of the old Soviet songs the old Soviet political songs of from the era of the great patriotic war and also honoring the memory of his his lost uh, partner in life racer so as we listen to this we'll hear uh, Mikhail Gorbachev one last time speaking about in a BBC interview in 2002 how he was formed by the culture of the Soviet Union and in particular the events of the Great Patriotic War when Germany invaded Russia and almost obliterated it and that when Russia fought back and retained, re- restored its, uh, its, its territory if at the loss of 27 million people. And we will hear Mikhail Gorbachev uh, in uh, the early 2000s singing an old Russian song. Until then, everyone, please do remember what thou lovest well. Be reft. Bye now. I love lyric songs. And even, of course, I love I love lyrical songs indeed. I used to sing myself when Raisa asked me to or when we were having a few drinks with friends. As people we are formed by the historical events we live through and the songs of the Great Patriotic War, the Second World War, will remain with me forever. I remember many of them with great fondness. There is Tiomnaya Noch, Dark Night and others, Pechurka, Asieni Vals and many more. It was a time when our society was rocked to its foundations. I was only 11 when war broke out, but even an 11-year-old is bound to have vivid memories of his country's occupation. Где строка, похожая на бисер, Расплылась в лиловое пятно. Что же мы тогда не поделили, Разорвав любви живую нить? И зачем листкам под слоем пыли Счастье наше отдали хранить? Хранят так много дорогого, 
Чуть пожелтевшие листы Как будто все вернулось снова Как будто вновь со мною ты Все давно прочитаны страницы Только я не знаю почему Сердце словно раненая птица Тянется к измятому письму и как будто позабыв разлады, Ты мне улыбаешься опять. Почему? Нет, никогда не надо Письма наши старые читать. Храня так много дорогого, Чуть пожелтевшие листы, Как будто все вернулось снова, Как будто вновь. Со мною ты, как будто все вернулось снова, как будто вновь со мною ты.